0: Ladies and gentlemen, aunties and uncles, boys and girls, and everyone else around the world, welcome to the Blendian Project Podcast, where we use love to redefine Black and South Asian relationships while shattering stereotypes at the same damn time. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm your host and founder of the Blendian Project Podcast, Jonah Batumzi. Walk with us. Anti-blackness is the foundation to a lot of the challenges that we face as couples, so I thought that talking about anti-blackness really just set the scene for everything. What I found aren't aware of the history between a black, black African, and South Asian, so it, it really puts things into, into context. Lindian Project is a podcast, as a project. One of the, the biggest inspirations for starting this project was I was about to take a trip with my family. Um, to India. It was the first time actually we were traveling with the, with the children and a, and a friend sent me a, a message, street mobs um, attacking anybody who resembles an, an African in various different cities around India. As you can imagine I was a bit shook going over there. Fortunately everything was okay. When I came back I decided that I wanted to reach out to all of these different people that I um, had heard of but that I had, had never really met. As I started doing research on anti-blackness, I came across a really interesting article written by a by a person named um, Druva Balram, and Druva just happens to be in London, and we have invited Druva to to join us today. So, um welcome Druva. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here.
0: What does anti-blackness mean to you, if if you could define it in any way?
1: In particular, with South Asian communities, can be defined as simply as the conditioned views we have towards a group of people on Earth, and how through different ways it manifested into seeing ourselves as South Asians as above uh, black people.
0: What I found really interesting by some of the the comments, or well, when someone says anti-blackness, everyone always thinks about. Um, black people or having to be black people. It's almost the color black or dark color.
1: Yeah. I think, I think it's the darker you are. So it's not necessarily black people. Anything that's considered not fair in South Asian society. Uh, I think it's a hierarchical ladder. And the closer you are to whiteness and fairness, the closer you are to what we consider to be, um, success or wealth or, um, positive. And the further away you are from that, depending on your skin color, the worse it is for you. And because of the way we've we've been conditioned to believe in this, society has actually set itself up in South Asia to perpetuate the cycle.
0: And that is a brief definition of anti-blackness. Sounds straightforward. Well, it's anything but that. Matter of fact... Many people are often completely oblivious that their language and actions are anti-black, while others are aware but engage in these activities to maintain their place in society. Let's break down anti-blackness further within the South Asian community with examples of how it affects our everyday lives.
1: I actually think it started as far back as the caste system. There were four classes, the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Veshas, and the Shudras the Shudras of the laboring classes. Within each of the four classes, there are several other subsets. That planted the seed of white is right, that mentality before the slave trade and colonization. Certain people in the caste system would be um, sitting indoors, reading, uh, and then other people would be working, other people would be outside, and then because of that, the way society started being built up, it allowed um, this condition to kind of start seeping in after generations. And then when South Asians were introduced to the slave trade, having colonization, that just allowed it to be exacerbated to the
0: point that it is today. Let's talk about millennials and let's talk about Gen Z. Do you think that caste yeah, is definitely. something that?
1: I think, um, you know, take people of, I, I was living in, in India from 2015 to 2018 and just purely based on my own experience, I can tell you that when someone is an upper caste Hindu, you know they're an upper caste Hindu. I have been at parties where upper caste um cis males will, who are Brahmin will start talking about how the oppression of Brahmins exists in India. That lower caste people are getting too many reservations. That if they mm-hmm. take up space at colleges, what happens to Brahmins? Who, according to Hindu mythology, deserve to be in these colleges because... Oh, Brahmins are supposed to start. Would you mm. say
2: that's the same in the, the South Asian diasporas and say the UK, America, Canada, Australia? Would you say it's the same perspective that people have today?
1: Yes, because I think the diaspora is so ignorant of cash, it's not even brought up in the diaspora. Okay. When it's such an important topic and it's, it's what dictates the, it's what allowed the diaspora to be created. Because hold on, it, hold on, hold on, so yeah.
0: come back, back, go back, say that part again.
1: I believe that the diaspora is, I, I think there is no discussion about the caste system in the diaspora, and because there is no discussion about the caste system in the diaspora, it allows the caste system to be perpetuated in the cycle.
3: That question that you posed just there about, what about now? It got me to thinking about um, when... Um, South Asian Indian communities came here to the UK and how how they sort of rubbed up against or didn't rub up against the existing class system here mm-hmm. and, and 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 what that meant that actually you could be a high caste but still be lower class coming to this country. Exactly. And, mm. and, and the difficulties and the challenges. You think you're something or you think that you have a certain standing and position. And then you come to a new country and all those pieces need to shuffle in a different way. And suddenly that um, the, the so-called kind of supremacists or, you know, the masters who were kind of inviting you to you know, summer house parties in hill stations suddenly now, um, you weren't part of that community once you arrived in England. Majority, of course I'm generalizing, but you know, a majority of people and, and what that kind of felt like and what the residue. And certainly my experiences is, is what that meant is a lot of communities held on much more tightly to their traditions and their past yeah. in fear of watering it down, forgetting it, but also for comfort actually.
0: At its height, the British Empire was the largest in history. Known as the jewel in the crown, India was the empire's most valuable possession and an important source of Britain's strength. This is colonization.
2: You kind of had the East India Company and then you had um, kind of more towards like the 17th century. Then you had the actual Mm. British Empire as, as we know it prior to partition. Um, so you've got the colonial sense in terms of very much just commerce, and then you've got kind of a, a breakdown of that, and then the British Raj, and then 1947 partition. So you, that's kind of two chapters, um, mm-hmm. in a way of, of how you might see, uh, the influence of, of the British in, in India. Or, and obviously, for anyone listening, when we say India, at that time, prior to 1947, we're talking about India, um, Pakistan, Bangladesh as, as one, one country as well.
1: I honestly think the way Gandhi shaped his politics, um, and especially in the lead up to partition in the 50 years before partition, um, has resulted in, uh, an extreme inequality in how the caste system works in today's India. And I think because he's so lauded for so many reasons, um, but this is so easily papered over that we forget that he actually fought against lower cash people in the constitution.
2: I, I would agree with that. Um, from, from what I've um, what I've researched and, and what I know of of the politics pre-partition, I, I would agree that because of the the accelerated pace that indeed the British but also the, the players, the political players um, at the time in pre-partition mm-hmm. India wanted to find a solution. We're we're talking about a time when the the British Empire was not sustainable, so they obviously were trying to accelerate this themselves, and it gave a perfect opportunity and platform for the players at the time. Um mm-hmm. Gandhi being at the forefront of that. And I, I, I totally agree with you that there's so much that inequality in India today can be traced back to Things that just haven't been spoken about and, and were quite frankly ignored at the time of
0: partition. Let me talk my stu, Scott. Excuse me on my Tupac. Keep your head up. When did you stop loving thy color? Your skin, color your eyes. That's a real blues, baby. Like you met Jay's baby. Uh, you blew me away. You think more beauty in blue, green, and gray. I'm a Solomon up north, 12 years a slave, 12 years of age, thinking my shade too dark. I love myself, I no longer need Cupid. Enforcing my dark side like a young George Lucas. Light don't mean you smart, being dark don't make you stupid. And frame my mind for them busters and talking woo ha! And need a paradox from them paradox they tutored. Like two todds, LL, you lose two turns. If you don't see your beautiful in your complexion, it ain't complex. To it in context, find the air beneath the kite. Uh, that's the context, yeah, baby. I'm conscious. Ain't no contest if you like it. I love it. All your earth tones being blessed. Ain't no stress. Jigaboos wanna be. I ain't talking J. Uh uh-uh, uh. I ain't talking B. I'm talking days we got school watching movie screens and spike your self esteem. The new James Bond gonna be black as me, black as brown hazelnut, cinnamon, and black tea. And it's all beautiful to me. Call your brothers magnificent. Call all the sisters queens. We all on the same team. Blues and pyros. No colors, ain't a thing. This is colorism.
1: Colorism is just a form of racism, isn't it? Um, it just affects people's if it if it's affecting people's livelihoods and how they can live their life and how they can earn money and how they can function in society because of the color of their skin. It's racism, and I think it ties in and so many different ways. I think colorism and casteism are intertwined because the higher up you go in mm. caste, the yeah. lighter people seem to be or aspire to be at least. Skin whitening creams are actually, they're actually the reason I got inspired to start researching anti-blackness. I was born and raised in New Delhi. Um, I lived there until I was 12, and then my family moved to Canada. But my entire time in India, and then um, but mostly my entire time in India, my grandmother would really you know, not like the fact that I would be playing sports all day outside and she would um, be adamant that my um, sister and I stay indoors a lot and we don't get dark. And when we moved to Canada, I kind of saw this behavior also creep up in my family in the way we interacted with darker skinned South Asians, whether they were Sri Lankans or people from India who were just darker skinned. And then um, I moved back to India as an adult for work when I a few years ago, and in around 2015 is when I, you know, I was hanging out with my grandmother, and she just made a passing comment about how dark I got because I'd spent some time on the beaches, Um, and she was, and that just, that in and of itself, I was like, this behavior hasn't changed, and that's when I started researching it and realizing um, that skin whitening creams, which is, I guess, the jumping off point for my entire research into this, is just a horrible, horrible um, part of the society um, it's the highest like Fair and Lovely is the highest selling skin whitening cream mm-hmm. in India um, it has 50 to 70 percent share of the Indian market um, it launched only in 1978 and the, the the company has just constantly puts out horrific commercials it puts out horrific ads and it manages to get all these Bollywood celebrities who um, come in and like promote what is essentially bleaching your skin to create some form of success or idea that being white will give you success and wealth. And it's really unfortunate because um, there are very few people actually trying to combat this issue right now.
3: Samira! Hi! Hi, welcome. You know you've become really beautiful. Your face is fair and glowing. It must be marriage. Don't you believe (laughs) that? For two months,
1: I've
2: been using Fair and Lovely. It lightens the colour of the skin in a
3: natural and gentle way. Really? And also protects the skin from the sun. Listen to your elder sister and try it. Perfect. So I'll make a beautiful bride like you. Fair and (laughs) Lovely makes you noticeably fairer. Gently.
2: The dancehall artist, Vibes Cartel, he had a a skin bleaching product. um, Had lyrics about, I'm Like a Coloring Book, talking about how he's effectively trying to reinvent his image by bleaching his skin. So mm-hmm. we, we still see this as something that clearly has its roots in the shared identity of, of the South Asian and Black communities, but yet hasn't been tackled. And on top of that, when you look at it in the context of, say, Blindian relationships, mm-hmm. it's something that still actually undermines both identities.
4: My name is Sophie Sabu. I currently live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I was born and raised here. My family is from South India, a city called Kerala, and more specifically, a town in Kerala called Padnam As a brown girl, I have experienced my share of colorism. This is not an issue that's talked about so publicly uh, in the community. It, I don't consider myself to be dark-skinned. You know, through my childhood, you don't really get exposed to blatant statements of, you know, dark is bad that dark is ugly or not beautiful or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I grew up with statements like, you know, use this product, wear this mask to brighten your skin with the intention of actually lightening your skin or wanting the result of fair skin. In the community, it's been a big issue where, you know, products have been commercialized to help those who want to lighten their skin, but they're actually chemicals and um, products that are being sold to bleached skin or lightened skin. The older generation, I guess, hasn't acknowledged that it is a problem, but the younger generation is working towards uh, resolving this. Sh-
0: I remember when I first met my wife, her way of kind of showing me uh, a pathway to the culture was uh, via Bollywood.
1: And the really scary part of Bollywood is that uh, it promotes uh, minstrelsy and it promotes um, blackface. Uh, so, if you go back even to movies, back in 1964, there's a movie, Karuppu Panam. It, was, um, it had a huge song and dance hit, uh, Adavaralam, Adavaralam, which, you know, if anybody types that into Google, um, you, it's like a really iconic disco song. Um, and all the backup dances and actors are depicted in blackface in the 1983 film Sutin. There's an actor, Shriram Lagu, who is fair-skinned, but he portrays a lowly assistant, and in portraying the lo- lowly assistant, he dons blackface, which shows that, again, anti-blackness is tied in with the caste and class system, because there's someone here who's portraying someone who is a lowly assistant, which would mean they might be from a lower caste, and then to wear blackface in their role is just a reflection of how the mindset of Bollywood works, and then the, yeah, the really
0: fantastic. I was, I was gonna say, yeah. like, um, again, I'm going back to my personal experience when I started watching it. But I remember even watching some of the classics like Lagan and things like that. There's a, yeah. there's a part in the during the cricket match where um, there is, um, I'm trying to remember, Katra. I think he's an untouchable or a Dalit, and all of the other people say they don't want to play with him. And there was like a really stunning scene in which the guy tells him, look, we're all the same. So how, I don't understand why, why the blackface is it? I think
1: because darker skinned people are always looked down upon. Um, and you know, it's as recent as, uh, in 2008, I think you actually brought this up with Priyanka Chopra in, um, fashion, yes. um, where she taken a lot of drugs. She's done a lot of, she's just, you know, indulge herself in decadence and debauchery, but the she's point wild, where she
0: realizes... She's wilding out, she, essentially.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's wilding out. And then the moment she's hit rock bottom, the moment she's like, oh, maybe I should change my life again, is the moment she wakes up next to a, a black man after a one-night stand. Like, that's yeah. just, just layers of terrible, terrible anti-blackness, right?
0: I know. I mean, um, I like... When I saw that, and I think that I got it from the article that you had um, ha- had written for Media Diversified, I mean, they could have gotten Michael B. Jordan, they could have gotten maybe, um, uh, I mean, Idris Elba or something like that. But, yeah, uh,
1: Bollywood is not shy of money. They've got a lot of money to yeah, get these celebrities yeah, it
0: was, So it was like they even, the, the person okay. that they even selected, they almost went out to like depict a certain um, look of this person. And like you said, hit rock bottom when she had woken up to this to this man, mm. obviously a black man, so.
1: What I think is really interesting with Bollywood celebrities is that they seem to use colorism as a launch pad to success, um, whether it's you know doing commercials for Fair and Lovely or skin whitening creams in general, um, or just the way Bollywood movies are shot. Uh, I remember interviewing Nandita Das, who champions um, the anti-blackness cause. She's actually um, one of the most vocal directors and actors in Bollywood talk about how the racist caricatures of blackness demonize black people further Mm. Um, and then when I interviewed her years ago she mentioned how you know she would just when she was acting before she started directing she would Bollywood directors would be like oh can you go be more fairer for the scene and she would have to put her foot down being like this is my face you either take my face or you don't you can't lighten it you can't darken it and she actually stopped I think she stopped getting roles. Or so she had like a an asterisk against her name because she became um, someone that was difficult to work with in the eyes of people because she refused to um, lighten her skin. And I think it's only now in the last five years that other Bollywood celebrities like Bishaka Singh and Abhay Diol and Rupinder Nagra are actually shifting their opinions around anti-blackness.
0: God, do you actually see Bollywood movies that have black people in them just doing normal everyday everyday type things.
1: I cannot think of any other top of my head.
0: Interesting to know if there's has there ever been a black person, you know, pictured naturally or positively <laughs> in any of these movies.
1: I I I can't say that I've seen anything like that because I think um black people are still unfortunately in such a negative view in the eyes of South Asians and I think it's because of all these these myriad of issues and Bollywood is like a huge huge part of it because it's got this immense influential power and they've maintained the idea that having fair skin is better just through portrayals in their movies
5: Hello? Hi I'm Bernard and I'm from Southern California but my wife and I moved to Mumbai about a year ago. I teach acting and I work in the film industry here in India, called Bollywood. <laughs> I noticed just a deep sense of colorism um, and anti-blackness. Uh, of course, um, with the way that people treated me, <laughs> um, especially seeing me next to my wife, they wouldn't—they under- didn't understand why she was with a black man. Or- and-, and the way they looked at my son, this little brown boy with huge curly hair. I think I witnessed how deep it was. Um, once I started working on um, projects here in Mumbai, and I um, became part of the backroom conversations in terms of casting, um, and I realized that um, it wasn't something that was hush-hush. It wasn't something that was a secret. The colorism was blatant. They would blatantly say, oh, we want someone that looks beautiful. We want someone who was fair and upmarket. And they're very open and wanting to... Um, cast people who had darker skin as as the help or subservient or um a villain. Oftentimes someone w- would walk in and they would be very talented actor and their and their skin would be a little darker and um the casting table, um uh, people at the casting table would suck their teeth and say, "Why are they co- even coming in for this role? We asked for someone fair. They can never play a hero. They need to come back when we're looking for someone to play a villain." Um and it opened my eyes to how deep the self-hate was, but how much the, the Eurocentric standards of beauty uh, has um, just rooted itself in the way that people see themselves here in India, which is true for many countries or many cultures that um, were under colonialism. It just blew my mind to to see how anti-blackness, anti-brownness, just colorism, was just shattering people's dreams. How it was skewing their self-image, um, and how here in India, it's not a secret. There's fair and lovely cream, fair and handsome cream. Every commercial that deals with the standard of beauty um, is saying, "Hey, do you want to be fair?" This is how you be. even the matrimonials. That's the funniest thing. In the matrimonials, they'll have. A long lists must be smart, make X amount, be professional, but has to be fair. Um, and it's mind-numbing. So I think that the standard of beauty is something that is the antithesis of who the people were made to be. So
0: let's let's transition to to music now. I know that part of your passion as a as a writer, the music scene and things like that, and some of the research I've done, um, hip hop is becoming a is a gr- kind of growing genre within um, over in India as well too. So mm-hmm. so what are things like musically, and how does this all tie into the whole anti-blackness conversation?
1: Music's a really interesting thing, right? Because well, I want to pick apart two things here. I'm going to pick apart firstly the diaspora. Who I am a part of, and um, having you know moved to Canada when I was 12 from India, um, there was there, there were only two kinds of aspirational models for me. It was black or white, and in a lot of ways, I chose black. So I would say the N word. I was very, I very with much was,
0: still with your black friends or with your no with uh, my South
1: Asian? with my with South Asian friends, with my white friends, with my okay. non-black friends. I didn't have any black yeah. friends growing up. But okay. because I consumed so much of black culture, especially hip hop, I thought it was OK to say the word before obviously educating myself and being like, oh, wow, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. You know, like.
0: And what, what, uh, what would the rest of the group say, though, when you were um when you were saying that to them?
1: And everyone's going along with it. Everyone's saying it. You okay. go through my old Facebook Messenger chats from high school and I'm sure you'll find me and the boys like saying it to one another.
0: Uh, watch out, man, you're going to go for a job or something. They're going to pull you up, and the next thing they're <laughs> going to end up front page. I've
1: written about this and talked about this very openly. I'm not afraid to hide behind this. Like, gotcha. I- okay,
0: fine. People in the group are using it. It's kind of common common language yeah. terminology. People are throwing it around, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, whiteness is the default. So I
0: gravitated to the other.
1: What was the other for me growing up? I'm not excusing myself of this behavior, but I'm just saying I gravitated the the other, which was blackness, which was hip-hop. And in doing that, I believed myself to be one with the culture before actually growing up and realizing, all oh, right, like I, there is a South Asian culture that I belong to, and this isn't mine to appropriate, first of all. But secondly, I should be worth using words of the like, like the N-word. And I still think there are plenty of youth in the South Asian diaspora who consider themselves black. Um, you know, we grew up thinking we were black, and we were happy to exploit the culture, co-opt its identity for our own capital and cultural gain. I think it still happens today. Look at the rapper Nav, who um, his old mixtapes had the N-word littered through it. He's um, he's from the city I'm from, Toronto. A, okay. He's a South Asian rapper who's one of the world's biggest um, musicians. And he's obviously... Um, apologize for his actions and he he has
0: um does he still use it in his um in his music
1: no he doesn't but I I, but he actually went really silent for a while after he was called out by Anupa Mystery uh, in a really beautiful essay on pitchfork which um if you're listening I really highly recommend reading.
0: I'm gonna have to check that out. Is he down with um with Drake's um crew and everything like that. Um he's not part of the crew he's just a
1: collaborator with them but he's not part of the OBO crew. Um, Okay. Oh, sorry. The article I was mentioning about Mystery was actually in the fader, um, and she eloquently encapsulated everything by saying, in the absence of aspiration that reflected our own hybrid South Asian identities, we gravitated towards black culture and role models. And then, so because she was talking about Nav and everything, Nav only a few years later gave um, an interview to Complex. And in that he said, which, which I think is really interesting, he said, well, it's like the neighborhood I grew up in is very multicultural. It goes from Chinese to white, to black, to Jamaican, everything, right? Everybody uses that word freely. A Chinese guy is saying it to me, I'm saying it to a black guy, a black guy is saying it to me. But consent from black peers does not permit us to use the word. And I feel like only now are we waking up to the realization that if you're involved in music, you don't have to say the n-word like anik khan is a great example of this a queens rapper there's um the sister duo from canada cartel madras who are putting out amazing music they are brown females and they don't use the n-word but you know i, I still think a lot of people are using the n-word and who are brown and friends of mine still use it um, um and they get really uncomfortable if somebody calls them out because to them it's like oh my black friend once told me i can use it so i've been using it since
0: yeah yeah i mean i just just a few interesting points that i found there so um i think earlier this year when i was uh focusing on kind of um taking the the blindian project further started listening Mm -hmm. to the uh, butter chicken podcast which is um uh, dj Sherrod and uh, dj juicy they're from new york city so um uh, both really big DJs back in the scene, 20, 25 years, spinning mm. pop. Now they do South Asian weddings and things like that, and have a big um, kind of experiential production company. So what they were saying, because they're close to the hip hop culture and he's down with Clark Kent and like a whole bunch of other like just big DJs and stuff, all different colors. So he was saying when they are growing up, um, I mean, you could either be white or black, just exactly like you said. There was no mainstream brown face to say, I want to be like him, so therefore, you you gravitate towards the white, or you gravitate towards the black. Now, uh, me myself personally, with my family's from Uganda, so I've had a, a different upbringing in the in the states. Kind of um, as a whole, I remember my mother, um, and and I wouldn't even like. It's not like I was walking around the house using the N word or throwing N bombs around. Mm-hmm. You know, but for her, it was just so such a foreign thing to be talking about i mean this is a word that kind of di- degraded the people and you know goes back to slavery times and then here she is hearing people use it almost like everyday terminology like hey how are you doing you know hey what's yeah. up? almost you know so like what else are your kind of future plans for this
1: um i'm hoping by the end of this year actually um it's supposed to be by june but obviously with everything going on it's given it another extra six months I'm uh, writing a book proposal because I'm going to put all of this into um, a good like 100, 200, 150 page like um, academic book with all my research and everything in it. Um, because I think there's th- there's a lot to be said here. I think we've we just started scratching the surface and it's very layered and very complex. So I'm really excited to delve into it deeper.
0: All right. No, that, sounds, that sounds dope. I like that. I like yeah. that.
1: And I think I think the, the biggest thing that I'm doing, which I think everyone should be doing, especially all of you listening, is speaking to family members. You know? Talk to your parents, talk to your cousins, talk to your sisters, talk to your brothers, talk to your grandparents. Because if you're South Asian, there's a 95% chance that someone in your family has racist views towards Black people. So it's better to talk to them now rather than wait for a blow-up.
0: 100%. Is there anything else that you would um suggest or recommend in terms of uh, uh, trying to engage the community, friends, family um, about the topic?
1: Um, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting articles. I would love to just promote the articles I wrote for Media Diversified if I can. Um, but also I want to talk about Anupa Mysteries essay in The Fader, um, which was just Beautiful. Um, it's called South Asian Artist Rapper. Wait, I can't get the name, but it's on the Fader. It's type Fader Anupa Mystery. Otherwise, I would just, you know, read The Annihilation of Cast by Dr. B.R. Ambedkar. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Um, and I would just go do a Google search and see all the people with real stories of anti blackness. And just start educating yourself it just takes 15 minutes
0: amazing well look we have um we've thoroughly enjoyed taking a look at your 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 work um enjoyed the conversation look forward to to building with you in the future we have a lot of stuff on tap as soon as um we get out of this quarantine lockdown situation you're in london we're right around the corner so um we would love to to build and continue the conversation Thank you for listening to this deeply insightful exploration of anti-blackness within the South Asian community with Vu Balram. We want to thank our co-hosts, Erin Lawrence and Nimal Jude, for bearing with us as we work through technical and logistical challenges associated with lockdown. To those who shared audio content with us from around the world, this episode will be the catalyst to inspire change. We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and more importantly, learned something. The African-American, novelist Toni Morrison once said, If there's a book you want to read, but it has not been written, then you must write it. And that is exactly what we are doing. You can subscribe to us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Please do us a favor and leave us a rating or comment to tell us what you think about the show. And if you enjoyed what you've heard, tell a friend to tell a friend. Hell, tell an auntie or an uncle about the Blendian Project podcast in person or via social media. If you have a question, please don't hesitate to send it across to us via social at Blendian Project on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.